You Can Sit With Us Podcast with Lexi B. Shira Gill is a globally recognized home organizing expert, best-selling author, and speaker. She has inspired thousands of people to clear clutter from their homes and lives and developed a process and toolkit that applies to anyone regardless of budget, space, or lifestyle. Shira is the author of Minimalista and Organized Living and has been featured in 100-plus print and media outlets, including Good Morning America, HGTV, Vogue, Forbes, Real Simple, and The New York Times. You can sit with us podcast with Lexi B. Hi there. Nice to see you and be here. Nice to see you as well. And before we get started, we have to congratulate you because you just published another book, which is a huge deal. I, I would love to see like the data and the stats on like how many people actually publish books. And it's very small. So I do want to honor that and say congrats, sis. Like you have, you are a second time author. How does that feel? Yeah, I think it feels like I can now call myself an author and feel legit. (laughs) No, it's so funny because my husband was like, no, you are an author after the first book. But for some reason, something about having a second book, I feel more comfortable owning that author I say own it. You are an authoress. I say own it. Live it. I'll take it. <laughs> okay. So before we get started into this very important topic, um, what is in your coffee cup? What are you drinking with us today? All right. Well, this is so boring, but it is on brand. Um, I'm mm-hmm. drinking water. <laughs> okay. okay. I don't drink coffee. Um, and I don't really like hot beverages. And it's fun. My friends make fun of me because, you know, I'm a minimalist through and through. My whole job is simplifying. And I'm like, oh, that makes sense that water is my beverage of choice because it's like, it's a free resource. It's simple. It doesn't create any form of clutter. Um, So yeah, I love to hydrate. I'm like Miss Wateraholic all day long. So I have to ask you, was this, was this little Shira as well? Were you just always the water drinker? I have always loved water. Interesting. My parents wouldn't let me have soda. Mm -hmm. So there was a period of time where I rebelled in college and it was like Dr. Pepper was my friend. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Um, But I got over that. And then coffee, I love like the smell of coffee and the ritual of coffee. It gives me an instant stomach ache and makes me feel like I'm on speed. So my body just does not enjoy the coffee. Okay. Um. So yeah, I'm like a water drinker and an occasional like matcha, but I'm too lazy to make my own. So um, water it is. I love this. I love this. So speaking of mama and papa, Shira, where are your people from? Yeah. So um, my parents met in New York. Um, my dad is from Brooklyn, New York. And I think I always kind of feel like a New Yorker at heart, even though they came out here before they had me. Um, I grew up going to New York and and my um, family is in Brooklyn and Manhattan and scattered all over the place. But um, it's it's been a funny thing being kind of bi-coastal in my heart because I grew up in San Francisco in the Bay Area. I've actually never lived in New York, but every time I go there, I kind of feel like I'm home. So, um, yeah, and all of my grandparents were immigrants. Um, so my grandparents came mainly fleeing persecution um, from Russia, from Poland, from Greece. Um, and so I kind of, you know, come from a long line of very impoverished immigrant people um, who saw education as the way out. And so 
the kind of legacy I inherited from my parents, who were both highly educated, um, even more so than myself, was like, education is the ticket out. It's the ticket to freedom and independence and all of that. So I'd probably also add resilience to your people. It's yeah, it's hard being an immigrant um, wherever, wherever you are immigrating from. And so I think that you coming from this yeah. double line of resilience, I think is very powerful. Yeah. Thanks for pointing that out. Yeah. It's interesting. My, um, my father's um, mother, my grandmother had to drop out of school at 16 and work in sweatshops to support her family. Um, I found out my mother's father also had to drop out of school and so it's it's I think in a way it makes me not take anything for granted just knowing what these people have been through and how hard they worked just to survive. And now I get to like bop around with a laptop, you know. <laughs> um, yeah, so that's not lost on me. I love it. So you are a minimalista. Before we get into the topic, which I want to call minimalizing your life. When I think of minimalism, I think of, and I forgot her name, but she had a Netflix show and it went very, very viral. Marie Kondo? No. Ev- yeah. Yes, Marie okay. Kondo. And everybody on the Instagram, Shira, on the socials yeah. were like, I have to minimalize my life. And as a person that is not a minimalist, because I love shoes, I'm just going to put it out there. I do have a lot of shoes, which is probably anti-minimalism. <laughs> I thought she was very interesting. I, I saw an episode of the show. And then, of course, I loved the social media yeah. around it that became really cute and funny and quirky. But it was my first time that I thought about not only minimalizing my closet like she wanted me to, which didn't happen, by the way. It did, it did not happen. But also minimalizing the priorities in my life because you only have 24 hours in a day. So my first question for you is, when did you decide to be a minimalist? Or is this has always been ingrained in you? How did we, how did we get here? My parents really drove home the ideology that people were more important than stuff. Um, They were kind of anti-materialistic hippies, to be honest, Um, like full Woodstock, Birkenstock wearing. So there was a real emphasis in my childhood of, I guess, almost anti-consumerism. So neither of my parents were materialistic at all. They spent their money on traveling or hosting or experiences. Um, But there was very little um, put on consumerism. And I, even as a young kid, I loved aesthetic beauty. And so I loved fashion. I loved shoes, just like you. Um, I loved interior design and decor. And so there was like this kind of interesting push-pull where I was like, I'm totally buying what my parents are selling in terms of their values. And is there a place for appreciating beauty? Um, And so I think I kind of invented my own form of minimalism where it was about intentionality and it wasn't about restriction. And um, I even like when you were saying, you know, minimizing your life, I was like, oh, no, it's maximizing your life. Editing your things and being really intentional about what you own and what you surround yourself with. But there's no part of what I do or what I teach or what I practice that is about scarcity or deprivation or restriction. It's all actually about leaning in hard to the things that you love and that bring you value um, and stepping away from the things that just feel like clutter or distraction. 
So how does one declutter their life? And, you know, as you talked about, I think it's bigger than a closet. When I went to your recent book opening in Berkeley, I loved the stories you were saying. And for folks who have not read the book, you should buy it. Um, Shira recently did this book where she traveled around the world and spoke to, got to know in fellowship with a lot of people who are also doing similar things in their homes. And my favorite story you talked about was the woman in Mexico with her tiny house. Um, I forgot exactly how small it was, but I remember you said the number and I was like, that's the size of a shoebox. Um, <laughs> like, I don't know yeah. where the pot goes, but the point was that this woman, y'all, downsized her life, like crazy downsized her life, is living in this very tiny home, has exactly all the things she needs to survive, and has found more happiness from that. And I think that's so much bigger than just, I've decided to only have two pairs of shoes and three pots. So I wanted to get your feedback on that. As you traveled around the world, what did you get? What did you learn from this idea of like decluttering your home and how that aligns to actually decluttering your goals or decluttering your dreams or prioritizing the things that make you happy? So, um, yeah. So the book you're referring to, it's my second book, Organized Living. And I traveled around the world with a photographer. I interviewed 25 professional home organizers um, from everywhere from Mexico City to Paris, all across the country in the U.S. and Canada and all over Europe. And so the thing that really struck me after interviewing and touring the homes of these 25 people was that everybody was craving less clutter in their lives, not in their homes, and that their home became, you know, sort of a symbol of what they wanted to create in their life. And I think, you know, as someone who helps people declutter professionally, We've all been in, you know, some of us, hundreds of people's homes and gone through this elaborate process of decluttering and organizing and dealing with the recycling and the giveaways and and processing stuff. And I think what that process teaches us is really to get in touch with who we really are and what we really care about and what we really value. So that is why I think, you know, decluttering your home is, is such a transformational process because it forces you to confront yourself on every level. What am I eating? How do I want to eat? What am I putting in my refrigerator? What's in my pantry? Do I like these things? Do I want to put them in my body? Or are they just randomly here? Um, you know, likewise with your closet, like your closet relates so much to your self-esteem and your identity. And so when you're decluttering your closet, you have to think about How do I want to feel in my clothes? How do I want to present myself to the world? It goes so beyond the stuff and into really thinking about how do I reevaluate and audit my life and build the life that I truly want to create intentionally moving forward. So I think, you know, to answer your question around like, how does it relate to life decluttering truly on every level? Like when you edit and organize a home, you have to think about what do I want for my life? Um, How do I want to feel in my space? What are the activities that are important? And so I have a very values-based approach to organizing. And when I begin working with a new client or if I'm teaching, I always start with why. Why do you want to get organized? Like getting organized isn't really a great goal unless there's a reason behind it. So 
the people that I work with, often it's really deep and meaningful um, motivations such as I'm newly single and I'm embarrassed to date or have anyone over because my apartment's embarrassing. Or, you know, I've always dreamed of starting my own business, but the way that my house feels is so overwhelming, I can't focus or get any momentum to be productive or creative. So I feel like our spaces and how we surround ourselves has an impact on literally everything from our relationships to our finances, to our careers, to our sense of self. Um, That's why I think this work is so kind of profoundly interesting. As you talk, I start thinking about my life and what needs to be decluttered. And for the record, it's a lot. Um, (laughs) But the one thing I am a, I am a Montessori kid by trade. I was, I was raised in Montessori school and I think part of that, even um, now as an adult, as an old adult, every Sunday I clean off my desk. And as you were talking, I was thinking about just that ritual of every Sunday cleaning off my desk. Until you said that, I just assumed it was me being a Montessori kid. But the more that you talk about it, I think it's me subconsciously um, trying to declutter a little bit of my life so I can be more prepared on Monday um, for the day job. Yeah, that's such a, I mean, it's such an important ritual. I find like the, the evenings when I take even like the 10 minutes to clear my workspace and to make a list of what I need to do the next day and what my priorities are and kind of get my ducks in a row. It's like night and day when I do that versus when I fail to do that in terms of how the flow of my day goes, right? Like, If I don't map out my day, I'm going to go down a social media rabbit hole. I'm going to be snacking a lot. I'm going to be distracted by a million things. So I have a ritual where before I go to bed, I just look at the one day ahead and I get out a little white index card because I'm old school. And I literally just write down all of my appointments and meetings And all of the little things, even like pick up my daughter from soccer at this time. Oh, we need dinner. When am I getting dinner? When's that happening? What are we eating? And just taking five minutes to think through and like plan for your future self. Then I wake up in the morning and I'm like, I got my note card. I just have to follow the note card and I'm good to go. So I think that kind of premeditative planning and intentionality seems like a little throwaway thing, like writing your day on a note card. But I can tell you, it's like the difference between meeting your goals and not meeting your goals is organization. I would also add to that, maybe it's also strategy, right? I think that, I think what you're doing is bigger than organization. I think it's strategy. Yeah. Because you're requiring, like even in your ritual at night, you're requiring yourself to say, what is the most important thing for me to do tomorrow? Because you can do anything tomorrow. And you are saying, okay, Shira, here are the things that I need to do tomorrow in order for tomorrow evening at this time, I feel like I've accomplished something. Totally. And I think before I did that, I was just sort of like going through my days, you know, cruising through. And then things come at you all day and then you're reactive instead of proactive. So I think what it does is it really puts you in that proactive I'm going to be intentional about what I'm doing and where I'm investing my time and energy and even money so that when things start coming at me, I already know, no, I'm not doing that now. I'm doing this thing that I've decided on purpose with my prefrontal cortex. (laughs) (laughs) At 10 p.m. at night on my note card. Um, Yeah, exactly. (laughs) 
So how does this, I, I'm interested, how does this show up for you as a parent? Because I know that you have two lovely girls um, that are what, teenager age. How does this show up with very layered teenagers? Because you know, all we've all been a teenager. It is a layered journey, y'all. Yes, yes, yes. Having two teenage girls is an adventure. But like, how do we how do we teach the babies this, especially at that very I call teenage years those flamboyant, very opinionated years, yeah, where they think they don't need you, but they actually do. But yeah, they sure do. I know. Yeah, I know. Someone was just telling me about um, potted plant parenting, where I don't know if you've heard of this, where. Basically, what your kids want at the teenage years is they want you to be like a potted plant where they know you're firmly rooted, but they don't really have to water you or pay attention to you. They can like go do their thing, but if they need you, they like to know that you're in the background. Got it. So that's kind of the phase we're in now where my kids are wildly independent. They're doing their thing. But if God forbid I make other plans, they're like, where'd you go? (laughs) (laughs) How dare you have a life outside of my own? (laughs) Um, I think in terms of like, you know, organization and minimalism, I have, I do feel, I mean, nature versus nurture is always like kind of a toss up. It's hard to know, but I will say that I taught my kids the skill of organization from the time they could talk. And, um, And I also notice, I used to be a preschool teacher, that kids naturally think in a very organized fashion. They, when they get Halloween candy, they group all the Reese's Pieces together and all the Snickers together without you saying, like, organize your candy. Like, kids like to have a sense of control over things. And I think for me, certainly as a kid, that was a big motivator was like, I don't have a lot of control in this world, but the things I can control, I'm going to go all in on controlling. So I think with my kids, you know, at at these teenage years, but even before, I think I've thought my role as a parent is to create boundaries and structure and to teach them my values, but also to give them agency. And so I was very aware that if I like forced minimalism on my kids, it was just going to backfire and they were going to become like wild collectors and then we'd all be in therapy. So essentially, I always um, taken on the role of I'm the parent. My job is to give you boundaries. Within those boundaries, you have agency and choice. So what that looks like in our family is like, you know, we're pre-holiday right now. Hey, guys, I know that you have a list of all the things that you want people to buy you. Totally cool. Got the memo. If we're going to have all of those things coming into our home, we have to have an equal number going out. So preemptively before the holidays, let's get together and do a quick clean out so you can have space for these new things coming in. And they just know that's kind of a non-negotiable thing. Like if they're not willing to get rid of anything, totally cool. But then I'm not buying you more stuff because such are the boundaries of our home. We happen to live in a small home with limited storage. So the physical boundaries dictate a lot of what we can acquire or not acquire. Um, People ask me a lot with kids, even with toddlers, like my kid doesn't want to get rid of anything. Like I want to declutter, but my kid wants it all. It's all important. What do I do? And I say, your job is to give them clear physical boundaries. And so an example of that would be like, hey, little Timmy, 
we have five big baskets and those are the vessels for our toys. So you get to pick five categories of things that you want to fill these baskets with. And that's going to be your variety of playthings. And if you want more, we can either rotate out or you can just play with what you've got. So then the kid gets to decide, here are the five different things I'm into. But the parent gets to say, and that's enough. Um, So there's a lot of boundary setting work in the kind of coaching and consulting I do that tends to be much harder for adults than for kids. Um, which is really interesting to me that like kids really get boundaries and adults, I think because we have more freedom and autonomy, we have to create and make up our own boundaries. And sometimes for people who are in a larger home, they're like, well, I have room for a hundred pairs of shoes, but does that mean I should have a hundred pairs of shoes? And I say, you get to decide. You're the adult now, right? Like you get to decide what is a reasonable number of shoes that makes me feel good to own. And that number is going to be different for everyone. I love the segue that we talked talked about about boundaries with adults. Because as you were talking about little Timmy and his toys, I was thinking why it's so difficult for adults to set boundaries. Because you're right, children, especially children who are in loving, you know, at least semi-healthy, stable homes, they actually enjoy boundaries. Children do not want to just like run feral. Like they, as much as they might get upset at your rules, they actually enjoy someone saying, okay, so like, here's the rule and play with it. But I think that we as adults, we lose that when we get older and we may go on a binge like your Dr. Pepper binge in college um, or other types of binges. And then we just don't know how to boundary ourselves. Why do you think it is so difficult for us adults to discipline ourselves um, and be okay with that? Yeah, it's such a good question. I think maybe because it feels arbitrary and because when you make your own rule, you also have to kind of take ownership over like, it's on me. Like no one made me do this. This was my decision. Now I have to stand by it, whether it works or it doesn't work. I think it's really interesting because one of the biggest questions I get is people literally saying to me, like, how many pairs of jeans should I own? Or how many coffee mugs? And I'm like, I don't know. Like, <laughs> like I can tell you how many work for me and my family, but probably that number is going to be really different for you. And so I think it's that's my guess is that the reluctance to set that boundary or come up with that number is because then it's on you. You can't blame anybody else but yourself if it doesn't go well. Yeah. And that's terrifying. Yeah. It's scary and vulnerable. Yeah. That's why I'll never force someone to get rid of anything. I'll never tell somebody the right number to keep. Uh, It's all on them. And I kind of think of myself as like a tough love guide who's going to send you like, really? Do you really need like 35 white t-shirts? But if you tell me yes, then like we're going with it. You don't want to get that call at 10 o'clock at night. Um, I know I wouldn't. I I would not. I would not. It has to speak more to that. I'm also thinking about how this relates to people's careers. You know, growing up, we tell children they can be anything they want to be. And I always tell people I was raised in this amazing household where I was told that. And then I became an adult. And that was the scariest thing you could tell me. In my 20s, after I graduated from college, I yearned for someone to tell me what should I be? 
because if you told me what I should be, then I could just Google how to do it. And the hardest thing for me in my initial stages of my career was how do I decide what I want to be? So then I can just create a plan and do it. Yes. Yeah. Tell me your thoughts on that, on how this actually translates into professional life. Yeah. I love this topic because I think it took me, I've been um, an organizing expert for 15 years. And I think I just realized this year that really my job is helping people make decisions. Mm. It's much less about organizing or decluttering and much more so about helping people arrive at decisions. So I think about this a lot, like how scary and daunting and vulnerable it is for adults to make decisions. And I think one of the things my mentor told me is she said, you can just always decide that the decision you made is the right one no matter what, because there is no upside to regret. Like there's just learning, right? Like, You can always have your own back and be like, I made the right decision for me, and now I want to pivot and do X, or now I want to try this, as opposed to being like, oh my God, I made the wrong decision, you know, and then beating yourself up. So like in my world, you know, I'm a ruthless editor of things. I'm not sentimental. I love having less stuff and more space. And so there have been times where I've gotten so ruthless that like, I gave away all my dress up clothes because I was like, I don't like dressing up. And then I was invited to a bar mitzvah and I had nothing to wear. Yes. So instead of being like, what's wrong with you, Shira? Why did you do this? Like, this was so stupid. I was like, oh, that's funny. I guess I probably need one dress. (laughs) When you make a decision, you can also decide I like my decision and I have my own back. Mm. And I think that's really powerful. Because I think the thing that scares people the most about making decisions is what if I make the wrong one? What if I fail? Yeah. And if you just decide there actually is no wrong decision, there's just learning and growing. Like, now I know I need a dress. (laughs) Let's go shopping. (laughs) But I think that's so profound because then the question comes up is, why are we so scared to fail? Yeah, And I know I can't speak for all of the children all around the world and how they were raised, but I do think many people, generally speaking, are raised of like, failure is horrific. Yeah. Yeah. Right? It's, it's, I think failure equals shame. Mm. And shame is the emotion people most want to avoid. Yes. Yes. I think it's really interesting because I will say like my dad raised me to be like, go big, go hard, take risks. Mm. And it it was almost like the only failure would be not trying. And so, and I think maybe that's rare to, to grow up with that message of like, go for it. And the only real failure is like playing small and not going for it. But if you go for it and it doesn't go well, you still have the pride in yourself that you took the risk, took the leap, stepped out of your comfort zone. Like I think, and I've learned that so much as an entrepreneur over the past 15 years that it's like discomfort is actually the currency to our dreams. Like you cannot make huge progress in your life if you're unwilling to feel uncomfortable, vulnerable, embarrassed, right? Like you have to be able to go through that very murky 
water to come out the other side and be like, wow, I feel proud of myself. I actually just wrote that down. I thought it was very profound. Discomfort is the currency of our dreams. It is. But I also want to honor your dad because I think, and maybe you already put this together, the fact that your mom and dad, both with these very New York roots, you know, were like, we like each other. Let's just go to California with our Birkenstocks and our hippies and just figure it out. I think that in itself kind of lays this foundation and groundwork for how you were raised, right? Like that that mentality in itself that both of your parents were like, bye, Brooklyn Bridge, we out, and we have no idea what's over there. Yeah. You know, these are New Yorkers, Shira. So they're like, Californians, do they shower? Like, yes. we have questions, <laughs> right? Like, totally. We have questions. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Your parents were like, I, we'll, we'll go see and send you a postcard, Yeah, right? Yeah. Well, the flip side of that is that you know, they came out because my dad was getting his PhD in psychology and later Ooh. became a forensic psychologist. And then my mom, once she hit Californian soil, was like, we are never going back to an East Coast winter. Sorry. Bye. <laughs> um, they ended up having a terrible divorce, but both staying in California where I was raised. And interestingly enough, like both of my parents fled their kind of dysfunctional families at very young ages. So my mom got on a boat and went abroad and like learned other languages. My dad went on a plane to Nigeria and lived in Africa for many years and joined the Peace Corps. And like the happiest days of his life were in Nigeria. And so I kind of grew up with those stories of like the best time of my life was when I took the leap and I did this big, crazy thing. And so to me, that kind of I had some like hero worship of that story. And I think it made me feel like I got to go big and bold no matter what I'm doing, because that's like the cool thing to do where it's like no regrets living. Do you surround yourself now as an adult? Do you surround yourself with people who are also go big and go home? Because I feel like if you were the only one in your circle who was like, go big or go home, that must be very daunting. It kind of is. And in a funny way, like in my now created family with my husband and my two daughters, I'm the one, right? Like I'm the trailblazer. I'm the one who's also like, could we leave the house? And so like I have a family of homebodies. My husband is a great anchor for me because He, I don't want to say he plays it safe, but he's like less ambitious than me. And he's much more like a rock. He's stable. Mm, He likes his routines. I'm the one who's like, let's get on a plane. (laughs) Let's go somewhere. So yeah. So in my family, in a funny way, there is a lack of balance because I'm the one who's like the dreamer, the activator, Luckily, they're happy to go along for the ride. Okay. So if they feel safe. They're like, mom has a crazy idea again, but we'll, you know, we'll get in the car. We'll do we'll it. Entertain. Um, yeah. <laughs> but I do look for that, like, in friendships, in um, my colleagues, in groups that I own. I like, not that I own, that I join. Um, I like being surrounded by very ambitious people. Yeah. That's what inspires me. Because I do think that in order to continue that that attitude of the go big, go home. You you need those people around you because, you know, everybody has those moments like, y'all, this is this is maybe a little bit too crazy, right? <laughs> and so it sounds like you have those people in your life, um, whether they're blood or chosen, that allow you to 
always think big, which is very beautiful. I do. And I also have to be careful of, you know, the arrival fallacy stuff of like, I have a lot of like big thinking that's like, when I get here, then Mm. when this happens, then I'm going to feel a particular way. I've started realizing is a fallacy like the you know, the whole concept of the arrival fallacy is there for a reason. And I feel like especially at the beginning of my career, it was always like when I get in this magazine then or when I have this milestone. And then what's interesting, like now having a 15 year career and, you know, I've been on Good Morning America, I've been in all my dream magazines and When you start running out of those things, for me, I hit a place where I was like, oh, I'm always moving the benchmark higher for myself. And part of that feels really good and and motivating. And then part of it feels like, why am I doing this? Like, why can't I just enjoy the beautiful career I've built? Why do I always need to one-up myself? So that's something I'm just aware of in my own life and career is like trying to get a little bit more gratitude and presence around what I've created in and sit with that for a beat before I'm like on to the next thing. You know, as we close, I also just want to give you your flowers because I think sometimes it's hard to sit in the beat when you don't realize or take in, just smell the flowers of what the beat actually is. Because we're so focused on getting to that next thing that you're like, no, but like you were just in vogue. Can we just sit there and honor that? Like Anna Wintour may or may not remember your name, but she signed off on that article. Like, can we just honor that? (laughs) Because it's vogue. (laughs) My husband's always like, please, please enjoy this for more than three seconds. And I'm like, ooh, that's going to be hard. (laughs) Like maybe one and a half, but like three. Yeah, I'm on to the next thing. So yeah, yeah. Thank you for the flowers. I accept. Yes, Yes. awesome. So in closing, what are you working on? What are you doing? We need to get this book out there even more. Where can we buy the book? How can we follow you? Yeah, how can we stalk you on the internet? (laughs) So I have two books out. My first book, Minimalista, details my entire process and toolkit to edit, organize, and style your home for your values. My second book, Organized Living, which is hot off the press, is um, a deep dive into the homes of these 25 organizers around the world. And you can find me online at Shira Gill on Instagram is kind of where I hang out and have my community. Um, My website is shiragill.com, just my full name. And I run a um, newsletter and community also through Substack. Um, And I do fun things like right now I'm running a declutter your life challenge. I do purchase pause months and buy nothing months and get organized months. Um, So those are great ways to connect. I love it. Thank you so much for doing what you do and for being here with me this evening. Thank you for this conversation. I've loved it. You can listen to You Can Sit With Us episodes on Spotify. For more information, visit our website, LexiB.com and our LinkedIn account at LexiB. And make sure to follow our podcasts on Instagram at sitwithlexiB. And don't forget to subscribe to our Spotify channel.